Welcome, birders. This is Ed Pullen, your host on the Bird Banter Podcast, where birders talk birding. I have to say, birders, I have had a lot of fun with the Bird Banter Podcast so far. I've had some interesting guests. I've gotten to talk to people that I would not otherwise have had a chance to talk to, and I think you've had a chance to listen to some people maybe you wouldn't have had a chance to listen to also. It's been fun for me. I hope it has been fun for you also. And I am really jazzed about today's episode. Today, I have Bill Twight as my guest. Bill is a guy that I heard about when I first moved to Washington and never really got to know him until the last few years. He is an incredibly smart, thoughtful birder who, in addition, is a scientist, he is a researcher, he is an author, he is just an all-round renaissance sort of guy in terms of birding, he does great work on eBird, he is uh, just certainly one of the top Washington State birders and just a really, really fun guy to talk to and have around. So I am excited to have him on as my guest today. I think you'll enjoy it too. So here we go. Hi, Bill. This is Ed Poland from uh, the Bird Banner Podcast. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Ed. Looking forward to our conversation. Yeah, I think it'll be fun. But what I try to do is just uh, first ask you to just give me a little brief outline of how you got started in birding. Yeah, how did you, did you, you know, how did it all get going for you? Um, I've been birding really as long as I can remember. Um, my, my family was an outdoors family, and I just always been interested in birds. So, kind of, as I was growing up in Chicago, I was lucky enough to have some mentors who really helped refine my skills um, and teach me what it means to be a sort of a critical, careful birder. And, and that you are, that you are. It's always uh, interesting to go out with you. You lend a perspective to things. I remember one of the first times I ever went anywhere with you. We chased the Siberian Exeter up north, and uh, after we found that, we're walking along the. Je- the dike at Boundary Bay, and you're mentioning the uh, Eurasian widgeons, and I'm saying, "Well, oh, I don't see any." And you're saying, "Well, I'm hearing them." I'm like, "Whoa, people can hear a Eurasian widgeon!" I thought that was pretty remarkable. <laughs> so, anyway, uh, that that was uh, my I say my first uh, birding experience with you that I remember. Anyway, why don't we start off with the excitement? Yesterday's trip was pretty spectacular. <laughs> that's putting it mildly yeah. that was about as fun a day as you can have on the ocean it was. or birding anywhere really yeah, it was um, crazy yes it really was i yeah. was just one of those um can it possibly get better and then it did yeah um, it was and and one of the fun things of course is is that you're not just out there looking at birds you're also looking for mammals and and just seeing how the ecosystem's functioning too and Something we didn't talk about much yesterday, but I sure noticed, was that uh, a lot of the alcids that we were flushing out the right. water looked pretty darn well fed. Too. Yeah, so they, they were having a little trouble nice flying to... some of them, yeah. Yeah, Heavy. yeah, and that's always a good sign. It means it is. the ecosystem Heavy is working with fish. right. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. yeah, pelagic birding is a whole new world. I mean, it's just, for someone who hasn't been on a pelagic trip, it's just kind of amazing you go out there and see these birds that, that they don't go to land except to make babies i mean that's all the only reason yeah, they the only exactly. reason they set foot on land yeah kind of give a recap of the trip yesterday for people who don't know about it sure um we uh headed out um using what we call sort of our normal route 
um, which means once you leave Grays Harbor, which is a large coastal estuary, um, we head pretty much straight west across a pretty broad continental shelf. And, and that's actually characteristic of most of Washington is that the continental shelf is anywhere from uh, as narrow as 20 miles off of Cape Flattery to as much as almost 35 miles or so um, off the southern coast which is great for seabirds because uh, those continental shelf areas, particularly where you've also got a, a boundary current, um, those tend to be some of the most productive parts of the ocean. And as a consequence, they really tend to concentrate seabirds. And so for us, even a slow day will still be thousands of seabirds during the, um, particularly during the spring, summer, and early fall when uh, in addition to the local breeders, um, We've got some of the Alaska birds and a large proportion of birds from the southern hemisphere for their austral winter, yeah. um, all congregating on the food resources available over the shelf. Yeah, it, it is. It and can be shocking. Yeah. It it can be pretty awe-inspiring. Yeah, city shearwaters in the hundreds of thousands some days. Yeah. Uh, then on the outer edge of the shelf, a couple different things happen. Um, one is you get some a, a phenomenon called submarine canyons, and there's several of these submarine canyons um, um, that dot the uh, the Washington Shelf, the outer part. One of them is Gray's Canyon, due west of Gray's Harbor, and we almost always try and head there on a pelagic trip, just because even if there's not much happening over the shelf, and even in a highly productive region like the Washington Continental Shelf, some days can be kind of blah, or, you know, other days can be fantastic. Um, so even on days when there's not much happening over the shelf, maybe because um, hasn't been as much wind-driven upwelling lately, or um, the uh, um, the spring plankton bloom didn't come in as strongly as as it does in other years, and and so productivity over the shelf is a little lower. There's almost always productivity over the canyon because it doesn't rely on wind-driven upwelling as much at the canyon. The the north-south currents, as they encounter the walls of the canyons, uh, portions of those get deflected up towards the surface. And so you get essentially current-driven upwelling, which is steadier and more predictable mm -hmm. than wind-driven upwelling. Um, same is true of the outer shelf, um, the, the slope, the outer slope of the shelf itself. But because that's north-south and the currents are running north-south, you don't you don't get as quite don't, as much of that as effect much. as you do from the canyons themselves. Sure. So we headed for Gray's Canyon, and um, and and indeed it it delivered in terms of uh, as we got over the canyon, uh, birds we hadn't been seeing much of over the shelf, like albatross and kittiwakes, <coughs> and Cassin's auklets, um, definitely increased in numbers. Um, and what we like to do most trips is do what we call a chum stop at the very west end of the canyon, in other words, the furthest offshore end of the canyon, about right. where the canyon mouth really cuts into the main north-south line of the, of the outer shelf slope. Okay. And we sat there for oh, about 40 minutes, having put out our usual chum slick, which is a combination of <laughs> vegetable oil with a little bit of cod liver oil. And that creates the visual appearance of, of an actual sort of uh, uh, upwelling type area on on the water surface because often upwelling is associated with a high degree of plankton. An upwelling front is associated with a high degree of plankton, and and as they're predated on, they tend to release oils, and as those accumulate on the surface, 
<coughs> you you get a little bit of a, a sheen that marks a convergence line okay. or a confluence line. Um, it's natural. I it's not. Uh, this isn't the same as oil slicks caused by uh, um, a, a, a man-made yeah. catastrophe. Um, and then the cod oil in that also provides odor um, that sort of smells like plankton, smells like productivity. And for a lot of seabirds that forage using a multiple set of clues, um, they'll use both visual as well as uh, olfactory clues. And so that cod liver oil, particularly if there's a bit of a breeze, um, that, that scent carries pretty quickly a fairly long ways. Um, and it so is that am- mix, it amazing to uh, see them come in, yeah. It can be fun watching them sort of essentially bloodhound their way up the scent trail. Uh, and then you throw in some um, chopped up beef suet to actually give them another visual attractant as well as a reason to hang around. Okay. Slick once they land. And <coughs> albatross in particular just seem to really gobble beef suet chunks like they're M&M's. Uh, but so do fulmars and other things too. So you, you put all those together and you, you can pretty quickly set up sort of an attractive uh, station for birds. And of course, actually the boat itself also functions as a visual attractant. Mm-hmm. A lot of the birds foraging out there have learned to associate fishing vessels um, with um, with available seafood. And so they'll often come by and just check out a, a vessel, even if you don't look like a standard fishing trawler or, or longliner. Um, they, they probably aren't still, that sophisticated. They've, they've learned, yeah, yeah. They've, they've learned it can be worthwhile to, to swing by. <coughs> so we chummed there for a while. Um and it worked pretty well. We had some really nice close views of albatross um, and some pretty close passes from kitty wakes. Um, later in the year when there's a much higher diversity, that's how we often get our best views of storm petrels. Um, and sometimes you get fulmars just I mean, right below you off the stern within a foot or two of the boat. Um, and often other shearwaters coming in, Jaegers will swing by and investigate. But that's later in the year. In the winter, we, we don't expect that kind of diversity. Um, so as we were finishing up there, our skipper, Phil Anderson, who we've been working with for, um, well, since the early 90s, actually. So um, yeah. coming towards uh, four decades. He's pretty darn good. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> He's, he is really good at what he does. And he enjoys this. He loves the birding. Yeah. Um, and uh, he loves having the birders on board. Um, he'd been keeping track on both his radar and his AIS system, which is Automated Information System, which is a, a relatively new system that allows him not only to see that there's a boat out there, but actually if they're broadcasting over AIS, he knows what boat it is. Uh, he usually can tell how fast they're moving. <clears throat> and um, and then so he can make a reasonable inference of what they're doing. And in this case, uh, the boat showed up on the AIS as a small trawler, and it was moving at a speed that to him indicated that it was actually towing the net, so it was actively fishing. Okay. And coming towards us, um, still 10 miles south, but he sort of calculated if we ran for about half an hour south along the outer shelf, line, which we like to do anyway, because that can be a very productive birding area. Right. Um, he calculated we'd be able to intersect with them. Um, first off, running south along the outer shelf turned out to be a good decision because we got some good views of um, 
several tufted puffins, which can be very hard for us to find nowadays. Yeah. Their population in Washington has really declined. And so um, it's always great to see them. And, and in this case, it was really interesting to see them because they were sort of partly molted, um, just beginning to really acquire their breeding plumage. And we got a chance to see which, you know, what feathers come in first. And, mm-hmm. and it was interesting to me to see that those long whiskers the tufts themselves right. come in before the white face patch really. Yeah, they were in. there and they had the but, a bigger part, sort of bigger red bill and maybe in the winter, but not the white face patch. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So you can kind of see, and, and, and it's not surprising when you look at the pigeon guillemots in the sound right now, a lot of them are kind of blotchy, but we don't get a chance to see that very often with puffins. So that sure. was fun to see that. So we, um, anyway, so we worked south and sure enough, um, about, a little over half an hour, pulled up towards the trawler, and, and Phil announced that we'd just gotten really lucky, and they were just pulling their nets. And um, One of the, the, um, the time periods uh, when, when fish are most available from commercial fishing operations mm-hmm. to seabirds is when a trawler is bringing its net in. Okay. Um, and that's because, you know, even though they're pretty good at capturing a lot of, of what they catch. Um, some of what they're catching is small enough, um, and it doesn't have to be much of a percentage. It can be a pretty small percentage, but of a fairly large toe, a small percentage can still be a, you know, a fair size. A lot of food of for, for a bird, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, and it's brought to the surface where things like albatross, which can't dive, um, mm-hmm. can actually get to it. Right. And, um, in this case, the toe had been mostly a rockfish, and there's they caught a fair number of one species of rockfish that's fairly small, and so the smaller individuals were popping out of the net, <coughs> um, out of the trawl, the, the mesh that forms right. the, the trawl, and just floating on the surface. And, oh, boy, was that ever an albatross bonanza. It was crazy. Um, yeah. And that's where uh, a very good day became a great day. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was um, extraordinary. In addition to... 90 black-footed albatross, which is a huge number for the winter. Um, 10 or 20 is a good number for the winter. Um, uh, in addition to the 90 albatross that had found this boat, 90 black-footed albatross that had found this boat and were clearly following it, waiting for it to do exactly what we witnessed, which is bringing the trawl net in, um, there were either five or six laysons, which is also a really exciting number. Yeah. And then, of course, the star of the day, the avian star of the day, those two uh, young short-tailed albatross. Yeah. Um, I still haven't done all the reading I, I need to do to figure out whether they were a one- or two-year-old, but they were yeah. certainly... I, I got some photos, and they had life. perfect feathers. I mean, just so it makes me think maybe that was their first year, but I, I don't know if that's a valid assumption. Well, some of the back feathers were looking fairly faded, whereas okay. uh, on, on yeah. I was looking at the primary. I was looking at the flight feathers, so I, maybe I should look at the others. And I would love to see. I'm I'm looking forward to seeing your photos of the outstretched wings. Yeah, I'll I'll, I'll send those. I'll send those to you to before I send them to Ebert. I was going to do that today, but I didn't make it happen. But yeah. they're, well, they're, I wouldn't have had a chance until yeah, now anyway. Yeah. So this is perfect. So, but all the flight um, feathers are pristine. Yeah. And that is one of the really great advantages of digital photography um, is the ability to get these really high-quality images of things like outstretched wings and learn things about molt that, you know, for, for an endangered species like short-tailed albatross, there's just not, not, not that many specimens in the world's museums. Sure. And so 
the kind of data that you can, we can collect <laughs> using this kind of um, digital imagery is really, it's of lasting scientific value too. Um, people can sort through the Macaulay Library, which is the library of the digital images that go into eBird. Right. Uh, they can so- sort through that library and, and really learn valuable things about, I mentioned the puffin transition already, but mm-hmm. also looking at the short-tailed albatross plumages too. Yeah. I- um, I'm excited to hear what some of the people who know what they're doing say about them because, uh, you know, yeah. they're, well, I am too. Yeah, I'm I sure there are better photographers, better photographers than me on the trip, and there'll be some great shots because they were just yeah, they're crazy really well. obliging. I that have I have be. pictures with all three albatrosses in a full frame picture. It's just ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, I like that. I with with my not so good camera, I got a great shot of of a laysan right in front of the the short tail, um, the that big hulking immature yeah. short tail, and then this black-footed albatross kind of looking out from right behind, almost peeking out like, from right behind the, don't uh, hurt me. <laughs> the short tail saying, Hey, I'm in the picture too. Yeah. <laughs> really I mean, great. Yeah. When you don't and see, the, when you don't see the short tail, the black tails look so big and now they look, they don't look so big. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, it's pretty fascinating how that bird can really put the others in, into a, yeah. a, you know, essentially a more petite category. Yeah. yeah. I, I was just um, shocked. I mean, and, I, I've, I've never seen one of those before. And uh, I, I was kind of on the, on the, not on the side of the boat that they showed up first. And I was kind of looking over people's shoulders and I'm like going, Oh, 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 oh it's, it's, <laughs> you just knew what it was. You saw that bill. It was like, Holy mackerel. That big bubble gum yeah. pink bill is just shocking. Yeah. yeah, that's really twice the the extent of a black-footed or laysan albatross beak, yeah, particularly it's just, in thickness. It's just it's ridiculous. Much stouter. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Really cool. And then the whole head and neck are also yeah. much more massive. It's a it's, it, it's a, a big bird. bird. It's a big bird, and it's got quite it's, a story. You kind of told us the, a little bit. Yeah, you you sort of told us a little bit about the the conservation status issues. Can you just summarize that? That was pretty cool. Sure, sure. Um, the population had been systematically uh, reduced, um, decimated might be a better word, um, by um, largely by um, hunting for feathers. Uh, the adults were just basically killed as they were on the, the breeding grounds. And they breed in the, in the Northwest Pacific, the islands around, uh, several of the islands around Japan. And they'd been exterminated from all but one of the islands through the systematic over-exploitation uh, for the feathers. And the reason they're being exploited for the feathers is the adults have this beautiful snowy white plumage. Uh, the, they do have some black on the upper parts of the wings, but the back and the, the underparts and even the head are the snowy white, but then the head had this sort of goldeny mustardy suffusion on it as mm-hmm. well. So it just a, a, a really gorgeous plumage. And uh, that was apparently very attractive to <coughs> Japanese and I think others uh, um, who were interested, you know, much like uh, the millinery in fashion. Yeah, in, in for the egrets and herons yeah. here, yes. Really similar, yes. And um, the, uh, uh, so as a result of that, as well as some hunting for meat, um, particularly by sailors and, and others. Um, right. They disappeared off of several of the islands that they bred on. And finally, the, um, the last island that they were breeding on, the island of Tarishima, uh, mm-hmm. is a volcanic island. And unfortunately, the volcano um, erupted, mudslides 
um, uh, were created in the eruption on very sudden mudslides, and the remainder of the world's adults were um, buried in that in that mudslide. Oh my gosh! Um, there may well have been a few adults at sea, but but uh, our best understanding is oh. that really what was left of the population, and it was so that's why there were only only subadults left. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. To I, the best I, of my knowledge, it, it, all the adults were were essentially extirpated. Do you know what Boatman that, that was? That. that was like 50s, 60s? Uh, no, it was a little earlier than that. Earlier, okay. And I should, I, sh- I should have looked that's it up. Okay. I, no, I can't I, I'll, I'll um, figure that out and make a note in the podcast notes that, that I can do. Sure. Yeah. Oh, that would be great. Thank you. I look forward to hearing that. Um, and it was really only, though, in the... Um, 70s when um, when you know globally we we began to think a lot more about conservation and the Japanese government led um, an international effort to begin to recover them uh, and um, it's a several fold effort one is was to just provide them with um, uh, complete protection uh, on the breeding areas and and mm-hmm. that that took a while as, yeah. as you can imagine. Um, also um, offer them as complete as possible protection from uh, mortality in fisheries. Mm-hmm. And and uh, worldwide, there had been a problem, particularly with longline gear and albatross, um, that as the longliners set the gear, um, they usually have bait on each hook mm-hmm. that they set on the bottom of the ocean. Right. And the baits usually fish, and albatross, fairly quickly figured that out and would try and grab the bait off the hook and themselves get hooked oh. and, and then drowned. Mm. Um, and and now that, that clearly a problem for all kinds of albatross, but clearly for a species that's already absolutely sure. on the brink of extinction, like short-tailed albatross, um, a huge problem. Uh, and so some fairly visionary leaders uh, of the uh, the longline fleet in the North Pacific realized they didn't want to have the ultimate demise of of a species um, as their heritage, uh, and so they really pushed um, de- development and then implementation of various ways of reducing that. And they very effectively they developed some techniques for for setting those longlines that that were highly effective at reducing the albatross entanglement to almost cool. zero. Oh, that's really um, cool. There's still an occasional one, but it's nothing like what it was. Um, and so that source of mortality, and then, then of course, that began to be exported some worldwide, right. um, benefiting many of the southern hemisphere albatrosses, which were also suffering the same fate. Uh, but um, the, the combination of factors of the recovery efforts on Tarishima and as well as um, also began to do a lot of banding, and then as soon as satellite tags... Um, became available uh, and usable, they began also satellite tagging. Um, in, in many cases, uh, they were, um, as part of the providing um, the best possible breeding environment on the island, um, having scientists on the island 24-7 to ensure no loss to predators, to mm-hmm. ensure no further human intervention, et cetera. All those efforts really began to pay off, and the population slowly grew from functionally darn near zero, but it you know took several years just to get breeding adults back sure. into the population even. And and then it began um, this wonderful period of almost exponential growth. And that's what we've been seeing for the last couple of decades. Right. Um, 
So yeah. when I first saw my first short-tailed albatross off Washington in January of 1990, the population was still in the low hundreds. And mm-hmm. it was truly this sort of goosebumps bird as this bird flew out of the west towards us at the west end of Grays Canyon. And yeah. just, you know, as if it was coming out of the mists of extinction almost. Yeah. Um, just in that period of time from 1990, and that was really, that was the first modern-day record of a short-tailed albatross since early in the 20th century. Yeah, I looked the, at the... I looked at the last the, specimens were taken. I looked at the, on the, you know, Rare Birds Committee reports, and it was like over 100 years with no sightings before that. It's just amazing. And, and that's a great measure of the depths to which that population fell. Um, and, and so, but then since then, it's just been um, a wonderful testament to global efforts at, at conservation and how successful they can be. And, and now the population's in the low thousands, and that's, that's fantastic. I, Gene, huge, huge I, I know Gene Rebless, my yeah, co-leader, right. one of our co-leaders, indicated that he just checked, and it's, it's higher than I thought. But that's, again, just a testament to... Um, how quickly that population is rebounding. And yeah. so we're still very much on what, what I call sort of the power curve of, of population growth. Sure. Um, I mean, if you have, if you a, have a, 800 a breeding pair or something, that's maybe six or 700 yeah. birds a year. I mean, and now on two islands, which is also exciting. The oh, yeah. Japanese government has spearheaded efforts to establish a second colony on an island much further south. Which is huge, because there'll be one more volcano, and, you know, <laughs> that's that. For, yeah, you know. exactly. Yeah. Exactly. That could could really set back our efforts. If, sure. And you never want a population just breeding on one island. Of course that's not. That's always risky. Of course for not. so many reasons. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a but great... But it's all working. And that's, that's, that's a that's great success so story. That's a great success story. Yeah. And Bill, you work in the fish, your Department of Fish and Wildlife. Is that how you kind of came privy to some of this information, or did you just study it or read it? How did you learn all this stuff? <laughs> You're exactly right. Um, uh, I Professionally, I'm, one of the fisheries I deal with is the, um, the fisheries in the Bering Sea in the Gulf of Alaska. Oh, okay. And, and they pay a lot of attention to short-tailed albatross and seabird issues in general. So... I hear about it on the job. I hear about it um, as a birder, um, and and then obviously pay attention to the science too. Yeah. So, so that's a, a great story. Uh, a great story, Bill. Uh, give us a. I mean, Westport Seabirds is a major contributor to the world's uh, pelagic bird database. It's it's uh, tell us uh, kind of the story of Westport Seabirds. When I first moved to Washington, I thought you must be an old guy because uh, I saw you know your name and uh, uh, Terry Wall's name as like you know two people doing the Pelagic Seabirds. I guess I met him on a trip and I saw they must be about the same age. So when I first met you, I was like, well, he's young. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Um, Terry really, it, it's, it's mostly Terry's vision, um, for this. Um, but he, you know, every vision starts with the, often with a suggestion. Sure. And in this case, um, Terry had been doing shore-based seabird work for a while, um, as, uh, as a citizen scientist. Um, Terry is, you know, my, in my view, he's one of those fantastic amateur naturalists, almost a, you know, cut back to a century ago in England. Sure. Uh, when uh, um, 
folks were they weren't more rena- more Renaissance men. You know, they were scientists and a, and types. also exactly. an artist and an explorer and a physician, <laughs> all sorts of things. Yeah. And so Terry was a businessman from Bellingham who, in his spare time, did a lot of work with um, another um, sort of dominant name in Washington ornithology, Zella Schultz. Um, they were banding birds, uh, banding gulls on Protection Island for years, and um, I think even doing some work on the rhinoceros auklets breeding there, um, and and sort of doing what they could to study seabird usage of, of Washington waters, but more from shore, mm-hmm. um, because that's what they had the resources for. Sure. Um, in the late 60s, the... Um, uh, meeting of the North American Ornithology Societies, I think primarily the American Ornithologist Union, as well as some international, um, mostly seabird experts in, um, gosh, either Vancouver or Victoria, I can't remember which. Anyway, in advance of that meeting, they contacted Terry and asked if there was any way Terry could organize a trip out onto the ocean for them. And so Terry got to work and found a, uh, a charter boat out of Westport that was willing to do that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so uh, he took several of the world's most notable seabird scientists, um, including uh, an, a, a Brit named um, W.R.P. Bourne, uh, who was one of the world's most famous seabird scientists at the time. Uh, it was very much a pioneering field and, and, Officers of the British Navy were some of the sure they had some time <laughs> at sea. Seabird observers, <laughs> and and Dr. Bourne received a lot of their data. Um, so anyway, Terry was able to get them out on the ocean, and um, uh, Dr. Bourne said, "Well, this is this is a wonderful thing you have here. This is a fantastic resource you have here. Uh, you know, are you going to um, do you come out here regularly?" And Terry sort of had to say, "Well, no. I organized this for you guys. Never really done this before." And he Dr. Bourne said, well, you, you know, you got something here. And, um, and also said, uh, and while you're out here, you should be counting birds. Um, you shouldn't just be out here Checking you know, enjoying out. yourself. Sure. You should actually be counting. And it was that, that seed that um, really became Westport Seabirds. Um, Terry took that challenge on. Uh, initially, Dennis Paulson provided some help, right. uh, as well as a couple of Bellingham area birders. Um, at least one of whom has gone on to become a, a seabird scientist in his own right, um, doesn't work in, in Washington anymore. And his name is currently escaping me. But, That's okay. Um, and, uh, and so from there, Terry grew uh, Westport Seabirds. It, it took off pretty quickly because at the time, by then it was the early 70s, sure. uh, when it really began to... Take off. It's also um, the, the explosion of interest in birding on the West Coast. I mean, California especially, but exactly. here too. And the explosion of, of interest in birding um, on the ocean, too. Sure. Um, I, uh, when I came to Washington in 1973, I'd, I'd been able to go on some of, the, some of the very first pelagic trips on the East Coast, um, off of Montauk, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, well before we knew about getting out into the Gulf Stream or anything else. Sure. Um, there was, you know, back then you could go out of Monterey, you could go out of Montauk um, on the East Coast, and and that was about it in terms of regular trips. So these were some of the first, among the first real regularly scheduled trips. And, and uh, I'd already, as, as a um, 
um, after spending a summer on the um, Farallon Islands off of off of San Francisco, oh. working as a volunteer for Point Reyes Bird Observatory, I just my love for seabirds, which was sparked um, on pelagic trips off Montauk and and on the Blue Nose Ferry in the Gulf of Maine, yeah. just really. Yeah. Right. <laughs> unfortunately, that's a fast yeah. boat now. Yeah. 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 yeah unfortunately, because it was a great boat before. You could look straight down on Wilson's and Leach's storm petrels or rednecked and red fowler oaks and really see the, the, the differences in flight by looking straight down off the bow. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, that's another story. Um, so I, I just, uh, my second day in Washington, I was on board. Uh, back then, it was the Apollo, was the boat we used um, with Terry. And um, um, after a few years, I um, felt really privileged when Terry asked me to start um, helping to lead those trips. Yeah. Developed a really close friendship um, with Terry, uh, uh, somebody I really admired. I think he's really influenced how I do science as a professional um, in the natural resources field of fisheries, mm-hmm. as well as how I view the role of citizen science and, and how that intersects with birding. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you've certainly been Terry a local really, a local leader in the eBird movement, so that that shows up. And and boy, is eBird ever a great example of the power of citizen science properly conducted. Um, yeah. So I, I'm I'm a real passionate believer in that, and I, that all sort of it was Terry who really not just planted the seeds, but helped nurture those seeds sure. of of the importance of. Have a good time while you're birding, but um, also Why don't at you least make some, some of notes. The time, find yeah. ways to contribute. Yeah, yeah. Pardon? As I make some notes and keep track. Yes, good. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. So, so yeah. Westport Seabirds now has, I think, I heard the longest uh, continuous uh, pelagic birding database in the world. That's we do. That's we do pretty, because pretty big kudos. We got systematic about it, um, starting really right around 1970. Um, yeah. We're, we're coming up on 50 years of anywhere from 10 to 20 trips a year with data collected the same way. Um, Terry laid out a really good sort of robust data collection protocol. Um, nowhere nearly as rigorous as you'd get um, if you put two trained ornithologists on a research vessel. Um, but um, because we have customer service to think of, yeah, we have to support the we boat. We don't have willing customers, <laughs> and I'm a willing customer. Exactly, yeah, it's always fun. Yeah, it's fun. Yeah. yeah. So the collection protocol that that Terry laid out, very nicely balanced, um, meeting birders' customers' needs with um, with a, a very pragmatic approach to data collection that. Uh, um, say over the years has proved really valuable for tracking the ups and downs of, of a fair number of species out there. Yeah, it's, it's been terrific. And and the experience for anyone who wants to go seabirding in Washington, it's besides being the only resource, it's a great resource. I mean, Westport Seabirds is just yeah. a first-class organization. Phil runs a great boat. Yeah, and, it's and wonderful. All, the leaders, are, all the leaders are all the leaders are just very talented and personable. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a pleasure. It's a real pleasure. Uh, now that I've learned not to get sick, it's even more of a pleasure. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so that really uh, well, and seasickness is, comes and goes out there. That's yeah, for sure. It um, does. But uh, certainly, it's something that over time you can 
you can learn. To, I've learned you can my train recipe. Yourself to yeah, handle. I've learned my recipe. I go down yeah. the night before. I get a good night's sleep. I take my drugs the night before. I take my maclizine in the morning. I don't stop eating the whole trip. I don't go inside. I look at the horizon, and I just do fine. <laughs> yeah, but it, it, yeah, we all have. And our it own. is amazing how an albatross can cure seasickness. Too. Oh yes, particularly yeah. a rare albatross. Yeah, I, I've. Yeah, but, one of the yeah. one of the early trips I went on, everyone was sick. It was a rough day, and mm-hmm. I think it was one associated with a wasp convention down there many years ago. Uh, and uh, mm-hmm. it, every, everyone on the boat was sick. I'd say half of the people were laying in the aisles, green in their own excrement. It was just awful. Uh, and then a bird would come, and everyone would pop up and look at the bird and back to the ground. <laughs> it was just. <laughs> and I'm trying to yeah, trying to hold it together. Yeah. We 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 do um we're we're very careful about um doing it well. We never go out if it's unsafe. Yeah. That's yeah. that's I mean I, I'll vouch for that. I've I've been on the boat and been sent home. So uh, Phil is very yeah. Yeah. he's just does it right. Yeah. Does it right. So, so it's never an issue of safety, but there is always that issue of, of essentially passenger comfort. Um yeah. And uh, and and sometimes we find that when we get out there, conditions aren't as good as as we thought, just from the standpoint of actually being able to bird. Yeah. Um, and so you do have the occasional trip like that where, uh, and and I'll get sick on those as well. Um, but um, uh, those all you, those you are the exception. They're the exception. What you remember these days. are the the great trips. The the, um, the two short tail and, albatrosses uh, together. I, I'll remember yeah. that one. Yeah, for sure. Bill, I want to. Get away from Westport Seabirds just a little bit because you know you've done some other really cool stuff. Tell us just sort of briefly how Birds of Washington, the Breeding Bird Atlas, came together. That's a huge undertaking that you were involved in too, wasn't it? It, it is, but let me be clear: okay. the Breeding Bird Atlas for Washington was actually a separate oh, okay. um, effort that was done a few years earlier, and that was spearheaded by um, well, Phil Maddox. Uh, um, who was secretary of the records committee for quite a while and, and a Washington birding force for quite okay. a while, as well as a couple of um, scientists at, at Washington state university. We were fortunately able to take advantage of that work, <clears throat> but um, uh, both Terry and I, uh, well, Terry Wall and I have the fundamental belief that um, state books, state bird books play a very important role in, <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> um, and what I mean by state bird book isn't an identification guide, but a book that describes what we know now about the status, distribution, usage, conservation status of all the known species in the state. <coughs> right. And prior to our book, um, there had been two previous uh, um, works published. One. <clears throat> there was, and, and both for their time, um, very good books. Um, the, the first one, and, and in, it's still in a lot of ways the most enduring one, just from the standpoint of really wonderful literature, um, was written by um, um, Dawson, William Leon Dawson and John Hooper Bowles. Um, Dawson was a professor at Ohio State University who traveled extensively through the West and also wrote a book for, about California birds. Mm-hmm. Um, John Hooper Bowles was a Tacoma area businessman who um, struck up and an amateur ornithologist who struck up a, a, a close working relationship with Dawson, and together they wrote that. 
And the prose, much of the prose is Dawson's prose, and it's just wonderful reading. Um, it's that, you know, it's a century-old prose. Um, they didn't know a lot scientifically about the birds, uh, they, um, but they sure knew how to write evocative descriptions of behavior and habitat and, and all that. It's still great reading. There are um, some people who can just write, you know. It really really makes it nice. Yes. Yeah. Um, Fifty years later, so half a century later, um, uh, the um, Birds of Washington um, was updated, um, and uh, I'm having a momentary blank, but by um, Jewett at all, um, Stanley Jewett. He was, he and his collaborators um, were professional ornithologists, um, but several were hired by um, groups like the U.S. Biological Survey or the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, so okay. actually working within government, mm-hmm. um, and, uh, and had been commissioned to do a fair amount of survey work. And so what they were writing up was um, both the increase in knowledge from um, active collectors, active ornithologists, as well as their own work um, within the agencies that they, they worked for. Okay. Um, Jewett also um, participated in work on the uh, Birds of Oregon, done roughly at the same time. So both states got a, a good update um, midway through the century, uh-huh. um, midway through the 20th century. And when I came to Washington, um, that was the state book, um, you know, and it was essentially what, what did Jewett at all say about the status of sagebrush sparrow, for instance. Sure. Um, and and that's what really formed our um, understanding of of status and distribution of Washington's birds for quite a while. But in the last fifty years, the the, the change has been tremendous, both in terms of um, our knowledge and habit- our habitat, to and, data, yeah, yeah. but also equally habitat. The habitat forces have been. Uh, when Jewett et al. was written, the Columbia River was just undergoing the, the transformations, um, the, the building of the dam. Into a series um, of lakes. <laughs> into a series of lakes, for instance, and therefore the tremendous changes in, in um, agriculture on the east side um, as well. And, and so both Terry and I recognize that um, half a century is probably about as long as you want to go, particularly when the pace of change is as fast as it as it has been for Washington State for the last half century. Yeah. And that it was time for a new book, um, a new summary. Uh, We did some checking around. There didn't appear to be any other um, folks interested or equipped to to take it on um, as a a project, and so decided we'd put up the word that we were starting to do that. And we got uh, quite a bit of cooperation. from museum folks, a lot of cooperation from folks within federal and, and my own agency. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, and then a lot of birders were really interested in, in helping contribute, too. Uh, cool. So, and then um, we also took on, as a, as a third partner, Steve Mladenoff, um, who's another birder, um, very, very skilled field birder, and at the time was a real uh, force in Washington State birding. And uh, so together, the three of us sort of shepherded this this new reference work through um i'm still very proud of what we did oh, I, I i own a copy it, it's, it's a beautiful book yeah. it's it's yeah when, um, well w- and wonderful pen and ink ske- sketches by um 
uh, a Washington State artist, Scott Mills, who's also one of our leaders. Mm-hmm. One of leaders. Westport. And, and then and Shawnine. Shawnine yeah. Finnegan, yeah, who's now living in Portland and right. um, just also a very talented bird artist. Um, she's, so she's a great to have that. Wonderful birder, too. I, I was on the, I did that searcher trip, that pelagic out of San Diego, and she was one of the kind of last second invite leaders on that. And oh, she was just, she was really good. <laughs> it was fun. She really is with a really great people touch. Too. Yeah, yeah. She was definitely the, uh, yeah, the the of the five leaders. She was definitely the most uh, easiest to talk to. Let's put it that way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 yeah so yeah, cool. I think highly of her. Yeah. Um, and great to have her in the Northwest. Yeah, along with sure the Hudson Dave Yeah, she, she, she's on. She's. She, I think she's on both Washington and Oregon uh, Rare Birds Committee, if I remember correctly. She's, correct. She's correct. Pretty much uh, a well-known yes. expert for sure. She really is. Yeah. So, so anyway, it, it all came together. Um, I think we avoided some of the temptations from some state books, which is to. Um, try to include everything, try to include identification and notes on nests and foods and things like that. Um, Because a lot of that information is sort of better done elsewhere. I think we did a good job of staying really focused just on status and distribution. Um, It's it's the Bible As I look in the rearview mirror, I I wish... um, Well, I'm glad we did it when we did it, because uh, I still think half a century is about as long as you want to go. Sure. But I sure wish Ebert had been available. I <laughs> wish Ebert been nice. had started 10 or 15. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. The amount of information that's been generated between when that book was published now um, almost 15 years ago, and um, it's just largely through Ebert, it's just a staggering amount of additional information. Um, and uh, I... I it's got me thinking a little bit about well, how would I write a state book again now? Uh, would, you even, a, would you even? Would you even? I mean, I'd probably be an online resource now. You know, you know, with links that's to the. That's the interesting question. I, I don't know. I, I think I, that's a fascinating question. Yeah. And I still think that a living resource that's constantly updating is wonderful and very useful. But what you lose is <clears throat> that fixed point to measure from. A snapshot, yeah. A snapshot in time, yeah. Exactly, right. that, that you're then tracking from. And you can go back in and kind of laboriously recreate it within eBird. But um, what, what we had was we were writing from a fixed point in time of, of the early 1950s, so sort of right. just post-World War II. And and they drove a, the Jewett et al. drove a fixed stake in the ground, and we could measure from that. Mm-hmm. Um, that is a, we drove a fixed stake in the ground for early in the 21st century, and you can now measure from that. Exactly. Yeah, that's um, there's a strong argument for for having both resources. Yeah, for sure. I think that's it. Yeah, I think that's exactly it, and and that's how you synthesize both the. That wonderful sort of always evolving, um, always updating, living kind of database that Ebert is with the ability to say, um, this is how much things have changed over 20 years, yeah. 30 or yeah. 50 years. That is, uh, that's a great uh, perspective. Great perspective, Bill. You're pretty involved in Ebert. What do you do for them? Uh, what do you do with them, I guess, <laughs> besides enter a lot of Ebert lists? <laughs> Um, I'd like to do more. Um, and, and, um, 
but right now I'm part of the eBird review team, the the Washington State review team. Okay. Um, which is mostly a, a group of young, well, young from my perspective. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know. Folks who've been birding now in Washington for one to two decades, but are still um, youthful in terms of their field abilities. Mm-hmm. Fantastic eyes and ears, oh, yeah. and um, um, and just keenly aware of of the the details and nuances of birding that make a great birder when um, when you are that aware and and that alert to the to the sure. small changes and the small things. Um, and so that it's it's sort of a privilege to be associated with that group, um, and uh, also kind of enjoyable to be one of sort of the the, the voices of the elders in that group too. Mm-hmm. Um, help them sort of stay a little channeled and focused, but at the same time just um, admire their um, their intelligence and their acumen and and uh, energy, tremendous and energy, yeah. and their energy, exactly. And they're the heart of the review team. Um, and then I also help out with what's called the hotspot review, which is sort of the, the geography end of it, okay. which um, we'll see how that fares over time. But at the, right now, um, the way eBird is designed, it still functions a lot around. I mean, you can define any place anywhere, and that's one of the, the beauties of eBird. But um, the data, are, much of the eBird data are most useful when they're, when they're regularly collected from the same spots. Fixed and the spots, hotspot yes. facility really helps um, support that development of those kinds of data sets yeah. where I learned there that may be different birders, but they're hitting the same area. Yeah, I learned that when you and, uh, oh, I can't remember her name from from uh, from the state who came down and talked to us about eBird and the Pacific Northwest portal and how, you know, don't just drop a pin. Find a hotspot that's right beside your pin because that's more helpful. So <laughs> I remember, yeah, I remember yeah. that. Yeah. And that's what I want to do, be able to do more of is that kind of outreach. Um, I'm, I'm looking forward to trying to restructure some things, and I'm not sure I'll be able to pull this off, but I'd like to restructure some things and do some more of that kind of direct outreach that we did a little bit of um, and, and help, so help more with training people, both how to put more useful data into eBird and equally how to get more as a birder out of eBird. Um, yeah. I'd like to help eBird Northwest be a tool for really two-way communication. Um, and for, for a lot of birders right now, eBird is one-way communication in terms of sending data in. Right. And what they get out of it is, is list maintenance and rare, as well rare as bird alerts and stuff tool, like that. Yeah. Rare bird alerts or, or looking for, if you're traveling, for instance, Mm-hmm. Where do you see a target species? Uh, in terms of um, trip it's planning, it's that. wonderful. Yeah, but I'd I'd like to help birders see how their data are being used um, on a local scale. Mm-hmm. Um, the National eBird Crew has been doing some really good work with um, developing new tools, um, and and then giving birders kind of a peek at, at how they look. And I, I don't know how many folks, how many of your listeners have seen their dynamic. Um, migration maps, but they're beautiful, and, and there's a, they are so much incredible. information conveyed in those. But it's a handful of species that you can really get them for, and, mm-hmm. and many of them are not Pacific Northwest species. Right. Um, East so, Coast bias. And not everything has bias. to be that way. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Um, 
there's a lot of other ways you can pull um, information sort of systematically out of eBird. And, and so that's one thing I want to do more of is help eBird Northwest readers understand. So for instance, I've got an article that's mostly finished about last winter and the palm warblers and swamp sparrows. Yeah, it was winter. quite a winter. Yeah. It seemed like, and it leads to all kinds of questions about, is it just because we're learning the chip notes or are there really more? Two? Yeah. And, and those kinds of questions as well. Exactly. Um, and, uh, was it just detectability or was it a real difference? And if, if it was real, how different was it than some of the other winters? Um, those kinds of things that um, American birds, North American birds used to do in a sentence or two, uh, eBird Northwest is an opportunity to take several paragraphs, maybe even do a graph or two and a little statistics test even, yeah. um, really dive into it a little bit more and, and help birders understand how, yeah, you probably got a little tired of putting in your details for why that was the fourth palm warbler of your season, um, or if you were lucky of the day, um, why it's important to, to take that little bit of extra time to document it well, how that ends up getting used. Sure. And, uh, um, and, and that's kind of, that for me, that's fun. Um, it's also really exciting. It is. It, it is. Well, I'm I'm helps. excited to hear when you start doing that. I, I want to learn that stuff. Yeah. So that, yeah. that would be good for me. That is for sure. So, what do you see in your you know near term future, Bill? That we'll kind of wrap up. I I appreciate all of your time. What What do you you mentioned a little more possibly more involvement in in helping people learn how to use eBird? Uh, do you have any you know plans for the next you know months years that uh, you want to share at all? Um, keep going out on the ocean. <laughs> keep going on the ocean. Like, yeah, okay. Right. <laughs> um, but also, I, I think most of my plans really do. Um, I love what I do now and, and just keep doing a lot of what I'm doing now. But the ability to go to some more WASP conferences or maybe some of the other regional birding festivals and put on mini workshops about eBird, um, maybe even some eBird help clinics um, for folks who are struggling with aspects of it. Um, Keep nagging eBird National to make some of the improvements they're working towards. Yeah, um, we we have a sheer pet peeve keep, on that of not being able to uh, list non-list, you know, put non-listable introduced species in your database. If you do, they kind of screw up your lists. And a lot of us use eBird for the lists, and you know, it's a kind of you know that would be seems like such an easy fix, but <laughs> obviously not. They promised recently that they were very close to having that fix out, but um, <clears throat> I'll believe it when I see it, but it's a really important fix. Um, it's, it's a, it's a pet peeve, um, but it's also, it's, a data, it's, it's, it's real, eBird. real ecological thing. I mean, it's important to know where these introduced species are at and how many there are, but I don't enter them. <laughs> and I think a exactly. lot of birds don't, you know? Yeah. Exactly. Um, and, and birders can really track them if, if they don't feel like they're, they're gunking up their list. Exactly. Um, and I, I get why. I, I mean, I don't like listing a species, having a species on my list, but I know that bird was an escaped cage bird. Exactly. Um, but I also know that it, escaped cage birds can and do turn into real populations. Exactly. And if, if um, 100 people over the next year see those, wow, maybe it wasn't just one escaped cage bird. Sure. Right. Yeah. Right. And that's what eBird is perfect for, is helping us track how those populations get their start. 
really cool. So, yeah, really looking forward to those kinds of things. So well, that's well. If you need if you need a, a a trial audience for any of your classes, let me know. I can get ABC together, and we're nearby. We can get you an audience. <laughs> <laughs> because uh, and and that's a great group. You're you bring up a, a very good because they're they're keen, um, they're smart, and they're interested in having birding be something more than um, just a pleasant day in the field or a, or a great way to relax. They're interested in um, you know at least some of the time taking it to another depth. Yeah, we're we trying. Have, yeah, we all have days when we just want to watch the. Watch the chickadees and not think about anything else. And exactly. Those are good days too. But exactly. Yeah. So, Bill, I'm going to wrap up. Uh, is there? Can I uh, put out uh, any? If people want to get a hold of you, how would they do that? Do you do you have uh, uh, you know uh, Facebook or any kind of social media or web page or anything you'd want to make public? Or you you're easy enough to find and don't want to be any easier. <laughs> <laughs> um, the best way. I'm still just old-fashioned enough that I, I do email well, and okay. the other things not so well. So okay. the best way to reach me is is just my Gmail um, account, which is just a, the very simple Bill dot Twight T W E I T at Gmail. I'll put that link in the podcast notes. Bill, thank you so much for taking the time to be on with us. I know you've been traveling and super busy and uh, had a whole pelagic trip to lead yesterday, and I, it looks like you're probably going to be e-birder for this. So you've got a lot of e-bird work to do to get all of those lists. And so thanks so much for being on with me today. I appreciate it and uh, love having local talent. Well, thank you so much, Ed. It, first, I was just great to relive yesterday because, oh my gosh, what a day! What a day! Yeah, what a day! And even nice weather but and it, sunny skies and calm seas. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> even the peripheral stuff was great. <laughs> Not quite sure what we did to deserve that, but no, it must have been good. We were living uh, right, but just I also living just right. love the chance to talk about the things, the parts of birding that I get. So passionate and excited about. So Your passion shows so nicely. Thanks so much, Bill. You have a great day. Great. Take Bye-bye. care. Well, that wraps up the Bird Banter Podcast, episode number eight. And what a fun time talking to Bill Twite. Bill is one of those people that is so insanely smart and just fun to be around and just a super nice guy and so talented. It was always fun to be around him, and it's just fun to listen to him. I feel like I learn something every time I'm in within, you know, hearing range of Bill. Uh, so I hope you enjoyed the Bird Banter Podcast, episode number eight. Well, the Puget Sound local birding talents so far have been stellar guests on the Bird Banter Podcast. Bruce Labar, who's a close longtime friend of Bill Twites, was my guest on episode number three, and I think you'll really enjoy his birding story. Ken Brown, my mentor and longtime birding friend, is the guest in episode number two. His story's a good one, too. Check out those two episodes. I think you'll enjoy them. Be sure to subscribe to the Bird Banner Podcast wherever you get your RSS feeds, the iTunes Store, Spotify, Stitcher. In addition, check out birdbanner.com. It's a website where I have blog posts that relate to the episodes, so you may find photographs, additional details, other things that may relate to the podcast, or just other interesting information about birding. I'll also leave my social media contact information below, as well as uh, links to interesting things that Bill and I talked about today. So until next time, birders, good birding, good day. <laughs>